And, right. and whenever somebody grabs me from behind and I can reach over and grab that ballpoint pen and stab them in the hand, they're probably going to let go. <laughs> so I was armed, right? So yeah. if you take that approach, then you should be able to be armed almost anywhere at any time. And so therefore, you're going to have an easier time fighting, you know? At 322, we're throwing fire. We're Imagine if every moment of every day was unscheduled, unknown, and uncertain. Where you had to choose between your life and the life of another. Where you were deployed somewhere in the world to face an unknown threat and an unseen enemy. This is the podcast designed to serve those who serve us. So join me as we unpack and uncover why we do what we do when we do it from life's most extreme moments. I'm your host, Jeff Fanman, and this is Mindset Radio. All right. Welcome back. Listen, we're going to continue this conversation with Matt Larson, who's currently serving as the director of combatives at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Uh, Matt's got a just a slew of experience across the military uh, and variety of services in his work overseas. Uh, really the, I don't know, let's call it, what do you think, Matt, the godfather of modern combatives in a way? Um, uh, I get called that all the time. I think that the, <laughs> I, think, I think I get... I think I get a lot more credit than I'm than I'm due on that, though. You know, at the hey, end of man. the day, the combatives program was a collaborative effort, and I I just happened to be the guy who uh, was the face. You know, so yeah. I, well, and I think probably the visionary for seeing that there that there needed to be a different way, that there could be a different way, and then ultimately kind of the guiding factor for how to implement that. And I think that's you know that's a, a major piece of the equation. And yes, it takes an entire group of amazing people who are really good at what they do to really bring about change in such an important area. And so, you know, when we talked on Monday, we kind of hit a topic that I wanted to circle back to, which is this idea of how to really invite someone into doing something like this, you know, and I phrase it that way because we talked about kind of the trainers, you know, and they're really focused on you know, the guy that wants to be there, the person who wants to be there. That's easy, right? They get them in the gym, they're training them. But, you know, because of the worlds we work, we have a whole population of people out there, most of which may choose not to do this or may not understand the value of it or may not see where it connects or why to even do this. And there are people out there in specific roles, even within the departments, or just a standalone person who wants to get his partner engaged, or wants to get their partner engaged in doing something. How have you, what have you extracted over your experience? How do I get somebody who's kind of maybe not jumping up and down uh, to go do something like this, you know, and, and get on a mat or train this way? What, what have you learned? Well, so as a first, let me, Preface that by saying it's a big question and, <laughs> and it's a big, complicated, a big, complicated answer on a bunch of different levels. So totally. So let, totally. Me, let, let me start with with the first most important lesson of combatives training, and that is it's got to be fun. Yeah. And, and that that's really the key. Right. Like so imagine this. Right. Why does judo have a hard time growing? 
which is judos. They, they, the things they do are great. It's a really good martial art. There's lots going on. That's great. But, but the first thing that judo does is teach you how to do break falls. And they have this, you know, it's probably true. It's a good idea that to, to do break falls so that nobody gets hurt when they're, when they're taking falls. And that's probably true, except it sucks, right? So when you right. come to a judo club, basically you fall down a lot. That's your first few lessons, right? So, yeah, great. So it sucks. So they scare everybody off, right? So that's the first lesson, man. It's got to be fun. Now, what I what I do to intro people, first thing I teach them is just basic pummeling, right? Exchanging body locks, cooperative pummeling, like you, like every like every pee wee wrestler in the world is learning as a warm up drill, right? And after I've got people you know, fighting, you know, they understand that it's it's hard, but it's not terrible and nobody gets embarrassed while you're doing it, then it's really easy to put your, your handguns on with your, you know, with your, uh, with your leather and whatnot, and then fight over who's going to control the weapons while you're standing up. Yeah. It takes like two seconds to teach all that. Right. And you can show them how to, how to pummel against the wall. Now let's add guns. Now we're fighting over who's going to control the pistol in the fight. And that's actually what real combatives is, right? Let's dispense with the idea that it's unarmed fighting. Because it's not armed, armed, armed fighting. And if you if you are training to fight unarmed, then well, you're probably a fool. So when, for example, can you not be armed? You know, I say, okay, so imagine I'm going to get on a plane today and fly to Cairo. Not really, mm-hmm. but just imagine I was. Could I be armed? Well, yeah, because nobody's going to take that ballpoint pin out of my pocket. And, right. and whenever somebody grabs me from behind and I can reach over and grab that ballpoint pin and stab them in the hand, they're probably going to let go. <laughs> so I was armed, right? So yeah. if you take that approach, then you should be able to be armed almost anywhere at any time. And so therefore you're going to have an easier time fighting, you know? Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think there's, there's two things. One, I, I like the idea of, you, you know, you make it fun, right? You get a little bit out, especially in some of the departments where maybe you can't go to certain degrees or, you know, they'll, you've only got limited time. You can actually instill some skills and, you know, make it enjoyable and make the training worth being there and, and having a good time with it. But I, I like what you're saying there when it comes to, you're never really unarmed. I mean, if you're unarmed, that's a self-inflicted wound right there. It's because you're not, you're not leveraging everything around you. And again, that's why I like the combatives aspect, because I think it teaches you a new way of thinking and approaching the problem at hand. Yeah. Imagine, imagine what the Kali defense is to the triangle choke. It's to stab you in the lungs. So yeah. that's a pretty good, pretty good technique, right? So, yeah. so real combative training. And, and this is a, this is, you know, without getting too far off your, off your question, people do in the, in the martial arts world, they do the things they like to do, mm-hmm. you know, all across America right now, people are training with katanas. They're not doing it because they might be accosted by ninjas on the way to the mall. Right. Right. So, so they're doing it for fun. And so yeah. that, that's a good reason, right? It, it, it doesn't have to be real for those guys because what's the point? I mean, like I always, I always give the example of my father, you know, my father's an electrician. He's in his seventies now. He probably hasn't been in a fight since junior high school. That's a typical American experience, right? Yeah. So, so that you can train in a baloney martial art your whole life. Most Americans can, and there probably won't be a consequence. 
Now, that's not the case for soldiers and, and police officers and whatnot, because we're in a world where fights are real and people get killed. Right. So. Yeah. So therefore, your training has to be more realistic. But but yeah, the first lesson is it's got to be fun. And and then. And this is the real like a, we talked about earlier that the real expertise of a combatant instructor is how to build a program within within a unit's culture. Right. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a, a sort of example of how that works. Well, I'll tell a story. So once upon a time, I had the chief of staff of the army, the sergeant major of the army in my office, in my gym, really. So imagine the entourage was with those guys. They had oh, yeah. 50 people, right? So I said to the group, okay, who's the best runner in the group? And they're all like, oh, that's easy. You know, Major Longlegs, he just won the Marine Corps Marathon. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, you know, kick ass, you know, I'm a fan of that stuff. I said, so who's the best shot? And nobody had a clue, right? It's like crickets. I said, okay, so who's the best fighter? And once again, nobody had a clue. So I said, okay, so what you're telling me is that this organization has selected running as more important than shooting and fighting. And they couldn't deny it because everybody knew who the runner was because they valued it, right? And, right. They, and they thought they valued shooting, but they didn't know who the best one was, so they didn't really value it, right? And, and fighting the same way. So... So then the question is, why? It's not like they had a committee meeting and decided that running was more important than shooting, right? Right. So the reason is because every morning they fall out, right face, forward march, take off on a run. And what happens a mile into that run, right? The first person starts falling back. And, and what do we all think of that person? We all think the same yeah. thing, right? We don't even have to say it out loud because we all, we all think the same thing of that person, the whole army. And even that turd wishes some other turd would fall out first. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? You better run on the army is because we do it collectively. There's a, there is a threat of public humiliation involved with running in the army. If you're not a good enough runner, you're going to be humiliated. Okay. And there's also the promise of public accolades, right? Because if at three miles in the platoon sergeant says, all right, release. And all the rabbits take off to run back to where you started. Everybody wishes they were one of those rabbits. Maybe, mm -hmm. not, maybe not enough to go out and do the PT to be one of those rabbits, right? But, but they all wish, like, it's like the people who are buying the, you know, the thigh master, they wish they were in better shape, right? So <laughs> don't necessarily want to do real PT, but, you know, right. the desire is there, right? Yes. So, yes. so, so that's, that's why they value running. Now, so, so what about shooting? So, what I always tell people is last time you went to the range, and we're talking about army people here, who found out how you shot? Because most likely it was you and maybe the guy who helped you finger whip the score and then the company clerk. Yep. And maybe nobody else, right? So what if you post the scores when you get back? Now we know what will happen. Everybody walk up to the board and they'll look at everybody like, Larson, you shot a 14. You know, why, why do we even yeah. give you a rifle, right? You can't shoot with crap. Right? All the shit talking will start. And then, and then the next time we go to the range, everybody will remember that and they won't want to be that guy and they'll take shooting more seriously. See, so that's the, that's the effect that competition has on people. It, it gives you the threat of public humiliation and the promise of public accolades. Okay, so, so the downside of that is it's why people don't like to do it, right? Next thing you know, right. you don't, you've got the non-shooters trying to get out of it the same way they try to get out of combatives training and for the same reason.
they don't want to be humiliated. Okay. Right. But the good news is it drives your level of expertise in your, your organization higher, higher than it can get any other way. Yeah. Yeah. And it starts to, it starts to bleed into the culture of, you know, how you grow and become successful yeah. in your organization. So, so imagine, yeah. imagine how you apply that same lesson to fighting, right? So I'm, I'll give you the sort of Neanderthal one me method that you, you might be familiar with, but you know, when we started this in second Ranger battalion, the way it used to work was on payday activities, the sergeant major would come out, call guys out at random. It'd be like, give me the first squad leader, second platoon, Charlie Company, and the first squad leader, third platoon, Alf Company. And those guys would fall out in front of the whole battalion and fight. So, so the way, imagine that for a second. Now, over there in Alpha Company someplace, you have that guy running his pie hole saying, I would just shoot you, right? Like the proverbial, I would just shoot you guy, right? So, right. so the first thing we should note is that we are making fun of the proverbial, I would just shoot you guy because we know what he's about. So that guy falls out. He gets twisted up like somebody's closing the bread with him or something, right? Like, cause he's doesn't know first thing about fighting. Then he's got to run back to his formation, fall in with his men who all know that he's just a shit talking pansy. Okay. So what happens in that unit is this happens one time. And after it happens the first time, everybody knows in that organization, you must be a good fighter or you're going to be humiliated. Yeah. And so then you don't even have to teach them to fight, man. They'll teach themselves. They're, they're small unit leaders and stuff. will teach them how to fight. Well, and I want to, I want to jump in on you real quick. I mean, cause I want to frame that too, because you know, we are in somewhat of a kinder, gentler world, you know? Yeah. For the, the record, the, that's the Neanderthal way we were doing Neanderthal it in, way. in the 90s. And, right? Well, and, <laughs> and, do that and now. <laughs> No, but at the same time, I mean, let's get reality. Let's just get right to it. Cause I'm not, I'm not about giving everybody a hug or a trophy. Yeah. You got humiliated. No one humiliated you, but you. Yeah. I mean, so, so imagine though, what happens in that unit is that everybody starts training. Right. And, and so, yeah. and so there, the, the kinder gentler ways to do that are you, you put combative events into other events that they can't get away from. Like if you're doing close quarters right. battle training, you know, clearing rooms and whatnot, and you don't at some point have op four in there that are fighting back, but then you're not really training. Right. And, totally. and the same thing is true. If you're like, if you imagine what, what we talked about earlier about how we do in the army, you, you go out for a run or a road march, you come back, you do sit-ups, you do crunches, you do three, three minute rounds of ground grappling. That guy, everybody in that organization will become competent. And there's, yes. and there's not like, you're not putting the spotlight on somebody because everybody, you don't have to, everybody rolls with each other and soon you all know who's good. Just the same right. way we know who is the good runner. Right. And so, well, and there's a, and there's a big difference between being called out and going to the mat and, and just, and not beating the guy next to you, you're up against not beating the person you're up against, but still maintaining a level of respect and discipline. Yeah. If you go out there and you're competent, yeah. if you're competent yeah. and tough, no one will lose respect for you because nobody, no, nobody right. expects you to be the, just as they don't expect you to be the best runner in your unit. They don't expect mm -hmm. you to be the best fighter, but they do expect you to be a good runner and a good fighter. And yes. so that is a, that is a bar that everybody can meet. Yeah. If the, so, yeah. so we, so we trade the cadets here and they, in their classes, they have to fight. Um, they have five graded fights in, in their hand-to-hand -hand combat class. And in the final fights, they're hitting each other. Right. So they're 
It's like grappling with punches. So, so we have about 4,800 students here. So around 1,200 go through a year. So I've been here two years. In the last two years, so that's you know, 2,400 people have gone through that I've watched go through these things. And guess how many of them have humiliated themselves? And none. Yeah, Not a single one. None. We've had people go out yeah. there and... We had people go out there and do poorly, right? Like they get beat. Sure. But they're not humiliated so long as they're competent and tough. And they all are. And the reason they all are is because the culture demands it. If you must be tough to be respected in this unit, everybody will be tough. If you mm-hmm. must be a competent fighter to be respected in this unit, everybody will be a competent fighter. So that's the actual key, right? You set you set the culture and you you have tools to do that, but you know, the obvious one, like I said, was calling people out or integrating a combatives into your PT program or integrating it into your training, you know, and you need to do that anyway, or else you get, you'll get, you'll get swept down the road to just training people to be a bunch of supportive fighters. So that, that's a, right. that, that's right. a very important lesson as well. Like, like the relationship of sport fighting and real fighting. And, and that lesson is the best units in the world hire the the best sports shooters to come train them. And the reason yes. they do is because those guys are better shooters than everybody else. Now mm-hmm. we don't trust those guys on tactics though, because they've never been on the job. Right? So, right. so for us, the answer is you, you do uh, as much of that as you can do and stay focused on the job. So you're not doing all the non-tactical stuff and you're not specializing so much, you, you know, like imagine this, right? Um, MMA, right? Is it a real fight? It's not, right? It, it's, right. It's in like the whole jujitsu world when you say like, uh, is there time limits in fights? And the whole jujitsu world yeah. be like, but we'll say no, right? Except for in their sport of competitions. And I've heard without naming any names, some of the biggest names in that world say, uh, you know, they're just training for sport. It changes your technique. So you're not using that beautiful technique or whatever. But I would say this, there are actually two, basically two kinds of fights. The first one is help is on the way. So imagine I'm on a part of a counter-terror unit. We do a raid deep into Pakistan and we, and I go through a door and I get mixed up in a hand-to-hand fight. What do I need to do to win? Hang in there. Yeah, the answer is stall because I'm not by myself, right? Yep. So, yep. so I need to be good enough so that no matter who this guy is, he can't kill me in the time it takes for you to come help. Okay. Yep. So that's, that's the actual standard for most units. And that's the way you want to try to operate if you can. Right. Mm-hmm. But the other sort of fight is help us not on the way. Right. So, yeah. So if help is not on the way for you, this does not mean help is not on the way for him. So, right. <laughs> right. So that, that fight you got to get off the X, right? You remember the guy a couple yeah. of years ago was a, um, in Pakistan, he was a U.S. government guy and, and he was, it was an attempted robbery, armed robbery. Mm-hmm. He, he was armed, so he gunned the guys down, right? Right. But he was an American, so he's worried about getting in trouble. So he got out of the car, took their pictures to show that they were armed, got back in the car, but by then a crowd had gathered, right? And, and yeah. so, so what he didn't do was get off the X. So, so what he did do was he dropped him dead with the Kung Fu death grip, right? Like let's, let's, let's be real here. The Kung Fu death touch is real. When your trigger finger touches that trigger, 
people die, right? So yeah, one hundred percent. So even if you use a kung fu death grip on the people, drop them dead at your feet, you have not won the fight. You got to get off the X on that. So so that that means really is that every fight has a time limit, right? That time limit is is imposed by the tactical situation. And you have to have the skill set and the tactics to be able to win within that tactical situation. So back to what we're talking about, mixed martial arts or jujitsu or whatnot. Is mixed martial arts a real fight? Well, it's got a gentleman's agreement not to bite each other's nose off. Nobody's got a gun or a knife and nobody's buddy's going to jump in. Right. So it's kind of a fight, but it's like a fight in a tactical vacuum. Well, and there's a known end to it. There's yeah, a, that's there what I mean. A, a, there's an end point. Yeah, nobody's going to pull a knife out and stab you in the lungs, and they do. In, yep. They do in real fights. That doesn't mean the fighting yeah. is real. Fighting is drastically different than MMA. It's not drastically different. The same sort of training methods, the same sort of, the same sort of techniques. You know, very similar work in real fights, right? But, but is a big word, right? Like, but. In real fights, his buddy shows up. You can't mm-hmm. you can't cook the guy for thirty minutes waiting for him to make a mistake like you can on the mat in jujitsu, right? Right. Yeah, that's not happening. That's not real fighting, right? Yeah, you're not strategically like pulling out this and not that and waiting for this or waiting. You know, it is. It's on. The fight is right? on, right? And the fight is on, right? And it's on until you've created an opportunity to to escape right? To get out of it or get away from it or helps arrive. You know, I yeah. like that. I mean, I love, I love that. That just, again, we're going to, I'm going to kick back to like the whole thing around, like what is a mindset? Mindset is, well, these are, they're just two kinds of fights that we're going to run up against, right? It's either helps on the way or helps not one or the other. Yeah. And imagine, you know, a, cop act on, accordingly. imagine a cop on a traffic stop who, who's got somebody behind the car and they start getting into a fight, right? Imagine that guy's tactical scenario, because there's a lot of cops end up in that scenario all the time. Okay. All ever right now, right right this minute. Right right if we speak, this is probably going on, right? So, so did did some other cop know how far away was help? Right? Because that is is some is some civilian walking by gonna help jump in. You know, there's a host of tactical things. They could jump in on your side, could jump in on the other guy's side, depends on where you're at. Yeah. Exactly. So that putting yourself in those tactical scenarios, man, tactics are more important than techniques. But if you go ask a thousand Kung Fu guys what we should teach, man, they're going to give you an answer that involves techniques. Uh, we should teach this way to get past the guard or this way to stab somebody or disarm the knife or blah, blah, blah. All of which doesn't matter. I don't care how I don't care what techniques people use. I can show them basic. I, I show people techniques as a metaphor to learn about training. Yes. You know, here's a technique. There are many other techniques to it's, it's like I'll give you a I'll give you a, a, a perfect analogy. Right. Imagine the handcuffing techniques that people show, which are are similar, but different all around the country. Right. Right. So, so imagine that those are analogous to the, a, a method that you would use to cross a linear danger area with a with a rifle platoon. So, mm-hmm. so imagine what that means. So when you're crossing a linear danger area. What is important is that if the bad guys come along, you're ready to initiate fire maneuver, right? So that's, that's all your techniques. If you don't know fire maneuver, in other words, if you don't know how to fight your squad or fight your platoon, 
you don't know how to maneuver them in a fight, then it doesn't matter what technique you used on the on the linear danger area because you're going to lose that fight anyway, right? Right. So the handcuffing techniques are the exact same thing. It doesn't actually matter which technique you use. If the fight starts and you don't know how to fight, then you're going to lose. Yeah, there will be no handcuffing involved. Yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. just like a way to put these cuffs on the guy and secure him. And as I'm doing so, be ready to initiate the fight. And if I don't know mm-hmm. how to fight, you might as well just throw them at the guy and say, cuff yourself. Right. Hey, do me a favor. Put these on real quick. 100%. And I think that's, so that goes back to, I mean, one, that's why I wanted you to come on the show, because I think there are, these are all things you're not going to get from, from just, you know, shoot, move and communicate on the range. You're not going to get them from, you know, ready ups and, and punching holes in paper and whatever drills you're going to do. Right. Uh, highly valuable for a certain context, but, but this kind of stuff right here, it, trained you deeply to, and I believe, you know, at a very cellular body level to be creative in every moment. I mean, I, for me, I talk about creativity, right? Three, three things to me that makes the opera, the, the operation mindset, right? Makes bring somebody to the table. And this comes from my research and uh, my experience and everything over time, the three major things, right? The, the ability to be comfortable in any environment, at any time, uh, the ability to be confident in your own capabilities uh, and your ability to handle whatever comes up. And then the creativity to work the problem, right? To find the answer to the problem because nothing's ever going to be the same. And and to me, I, that's why I love this idea. And I wanted you to come on and, and have this conversation because and it, it trains that creativity that like you talked about before, right? A never being unarmed. Do I have a pen? Do I have a plate? Do I have a table? What can I do with this coffee cup in my hand? It, it brings it right up front with you right now. Yeah. It, you know, it, imagine too that, um, imagine too that what we're really talking about is how you, you get people training and then, so, so consider, right? We know about the psychomotor learning process. We know what it takes to learn physical skills like we talked about earlier. Okay. So mm-hmm. now picture yourself, you're a hockey player and you're skating down the ice, handling the puck, right? What are you thinking about? Well, it's not skating and it's probably not handling the puck either. What you're, what you're right. thinking about is tactics. Where are the other members of my team? What play are we running, etc. Okay. So mm-hmm. what we need to do individually is train ourselves on all the techniques such that we can think about tactics. Because if you're caught up at the technique level, if you're still like trying to get the handle on the techniques, that's what you're thinking about. It's like whenever you first, whenever you first start training guys in, uh, in units, like in close quarters battle, here's the thing that always happens, right? Put a bad guy in the room, you know, a clearing team comes in, three or four guys, and the bad guy starts fighting. Inevitably, everybody will lose security, right? It's like, it's yeah. like, uh, it's yeah. like if you ever seen a bunch of five-year-olds playing soccer, right? But, right, you know, exactly. All hurting around the ball, like nobody's got their. You know, so that's the natural thing, right? So, so what we need is we need to have the ability to know that that guy's a good enough fighter that he can handle it, and know that if he can't, he'll know it, and he'll be able to say, "Hey, a little help," and then we'll come help him, right? Right. So that requires right. a unit training program and a unit culture that demands that of everybody. Because if you're that I just shoot you guy and you're on the team, you are the weak link. 
you're the one guy that somebody else is going to definitely have to come save you whenever you get in a fight. I mean, you just call it what it is. That's it. You know, you, you become that, that place. And that's, I think that's what we're really trying to, to shift, you know, and I know there's a lot of people out there doing a lot of great work to help shift that mentality in people, right. To help shift that, uh, you know, that won't happen or I don't need that. I mean, I can remember years ago, you know, I grew up in the DC area and after I got out of the service, I almost, I almost applied for DC fire department. Good friend of mine is, uh, old, old school DC homicide detective. And he said, don't, he said, do not come to work for this department right now. Uh, cause it was at a time where they were leaving other officers, you know, guys would be calling for help on the radio. Nobody would come help them if they didn't like you. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on and there's a lot of organizations across the United States. I mean, most departments are what 10 people or fewer. Yeah. You know, you're talking a lot of people are, are out there on their own. Uh, and unfortunately, you also see that those are a lot of the departments that maybe aren't fully ready to handle what's what comes out. Yeah, most depart most uh, most departments are very small, just a few people across the country. There's only yeah. a few big, yeah. only a few big ones, which which also tells you that the 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 cultural fight, the fight to shift the culture, it's uh, very complicated because because you have to. Imagine this, you know, why everybody, everybody who's listening to us probably knows this, but, you know, why do we have a, a bunch of law enforcement people who are overweight? Well, we have that because of two reasons. Number one, your job is to sit on your butt most of the time. But when you're, when you're driving around, you know, many hours a day, it's hard to do the PT required to stay fit. And so a lot of people don't. And a lot of departments, in fact, most departments, can't make you because they're having to deal mm -hmm. with, you know, like I said, union rules and all kind of other things going on like that. So the cultural problem is really where is really where it's at. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I think that, that, you know, you got to reach the people uh, that, that are a little more self-motivated and then empower them to invite the others along. You know, I've worked with a guy who's massive fitness cat. I mean, just crazy. Awesome. Right. And totally honest about his place in life and that it's work for him. You know, it doesn't come natural, but it's just a, a way he's chosen to be uh, in the fire service. And, you know, he has had to really learn how to invite other people into create the opportunity for them to take advantage of that, to think that way, to be that way. I mean, I give, I give Not, you an, exa an almost exact example that is applies to everybody as well, right? People are intimidated by by the gym. If you, if you big, muscular, strong people say, hey, why don't you come work out with us? They're afraid to go get embarrassed in there. Dude, I was for right, years. Right. So, so how do you, years, how, scared. So how yeah. do you get them in? You have to be the most inviting, right? Like that's on the personal level. That's what I said about it being fun is the first lesson on the personal level. It needs to be fun, you know, and if you can get a, a person to get to get in the gym and get them past those first couple of weeks when they're all sore, you'll probably have them. You know, if the culture yeah. and if the culture demands that of new people and then keeps it, keeps that demand going then you'll have it. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's a, a hugely valid point. And really what I, where I think that leads us to and what I want to really get into here is 
kind of the psychology behind all of this. Now you've got your master's in combat psychology. You're getting ready to start your doctoral program. Let's, let's spend some time talking about the psychology of this stuff. Okay. Well, I can tell you why I, I started that and that'll probably be a lead in. I, yeah, yeah. I, uh, a couple of things. Number one, I read Dave Grossman's book back when it came out in the nineties and it didn't, it didn't jive with my combat experience at all. Like when I was through reading it, I just didn't think it was accurate. <laughs> and, and then in, Several years later, as the hand-to-hand -hand combat guy, we started noticing that very few people in our world of, of combatives training people, very, there were very few suicides. And so I had a meeting with, with General Cornum, Rhonda Cornum. Some of y'all may remember her. She was, the, uh, she was the flight surgeon, female flight surgeon who was kidnapped, or I'm sorry, was captured in the first Gulf War. And she was captured by the Iraqis. And she didn't admit at the time, but uh, because she didn't want to hurt women's chances in you know, their military and whatnot. But I believe she was uh, abused quite a bit while she was in captivity. Anyway, she, she right. was in charge of the Army's resilience program. And so I had a meeting with her and I, I was trying to, you know, roll combatives into that program because I thought there might be some, uh, you know, because I thought this, this connection was real. And so she she said, well, it probably is, but she said, but we are bound by law to only use peer-reviewed science. And so I started looking at all the peer-reviewed science, and I realized that there's just not that many psychologists and psychiatrists who are doing good science who are also warriors, you know, out there getting in mm -hmm. fights. It's, it's just a small number of people. So, so those two things sort of motivated me to start studying psychology more. As we talked about a combatives program, the mindset is at least half of it. And, yeah. and so, so if you, so basically I, I'm a, I, I'm, what I would say is that the, the evolutionary psychology of combat is something that has not been looked into much, uh, a lot, has not been looked into very much. And, and I think that that's the, the, the truth lies in there. So, so what I'm working on now is I'm actually writing a book um, that's going to do two things. The first half of the book is a, a taxonomy of combat experiences, a biological taxonomy of combat experiences. And mm -hmm. I can, I'll, I'll explain that in a second. And the second half of the book is as an explanation uh, of what moral injuries are and what actually creates them. And both of those things are outside of what the world of psychology is, is primarily doing. So, so I'll start with the, start with the uh, biological taxonomy of, of conflict. So what Grossman says is a good starting point and we should, we should thank Grossman, right? Like I don't, I don't ever mean to say anything bad about him. Grossman got us all thinking, got me thinking. And so I owe him a, quite a debt. Um, sure. But with that being said, he kind of loses what I think is the truth on page one of his first book. And, and that is this, he Grossman says that, that humans don't have fight or flight. They have fight or flight posture or submit. And so he extrapolates that posture or submit out into warfare. And that's what he says people are doing whenever they're shooting over the other person's head or posturing. And, and, then, and, um, he uses actually shooting shooting high in combat as a, as an example of that. Anyway, he goes down that chain, but 
what is wrong there is that he conflates two different biological mechanisms. So imagine in um, combat that happens in the animal world, there are basically two kinds. Uh, well, I should say there, there are three kinds, but the third one is, a, is an extrapolation of the first two. So the first one is a predator and prey behavior. So predator and prey behavior, it's important to understand because it's how our brains evolve. So imagine this. So bacteria come in predator and prey. And when a predator bacteria attacks a prey, when juices are released from the cells, right? We're talking single cell organisms. And right. so those juices can be picked up by the other prey bacteria, and then they will move away to get away from the predators, right? Okay, so that's important there is if the chemicals floating through the water or whatever they're in, getting to the other ones and chewing them in. So now imagine this, a sponge is actually a colony. It's not one animal, right? right. So when you touch a sponge, the, the actual animals that you touch, they secrete chemicals that get pushed around by the flow of the water and the whole sponge will know almost instantly and the sponge will retreat. Like the whole colony retreats, right? So once again, they're, they're communicating now on purpose as a colony to let them know we're on the defensive, right? So this is actually how our brain cells communicate with each other too. So the brain cells have, uh, when they want to send a message, they excrete neurotransmitters that are picked up by the other, um, other brain or other uh, cells. And so that's how they do it. It's not, it's just an, an evolutionary step from the bacteria and the sponges. See what I mean? Okay. So, yeah. Totally. So that's important because it means that thought, the whole concept of thinking is dependent on the predator and prey dynamic. That's how ingrained it is. Billions of years, right? So try to say that my best Carl Sagan, you know, billions of years, right? Billions of years ago, we, we started that process that eventually ended up with our thoughts kicking around in our brains. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. So then that goes all the way up to predator and prey behavior now. So imagine this, if uh, um, a gazelle is out on the, uh, on the grass and, and he smells a lion, right? So animals real animals deal with threats, on a threat eminence continuum. So that means the farther away it is, they deal with it differently than it's if it's close up. This is all animals, right? All the way down to the bacteria, right? So, so that means if, we, if two gazelles are out in the grass and they smell the lion, what they will do is move out into the short grass or something so they're harder to ambush. And all the brain activity will be in the prefrontal cortex. Okay, so mammalian brains are... are um, so... so have you ever noticed how like a human hand and a bat's wing and a whale's flipper all have the same bones basically, right? Interesting. So, okay. well, that's called a homology. So they all have a, they share a common ancestor at some point. And so therefore the hand and the bat wing and the flipper were all evolving different directions from that common ancestor, right? So our all mammalian brains are the same way. That means they could be as different as a whale flipper and a bat wing, right? But, but they basically have the same component parts. So, yeah. so that means that our thought processes work in very similar ways, okay? So back to these uh, gazelles, whenever they're 
smelling that lion, all their brain activity stays in their prefrontal cortex, right? So they're outsmarting the lion by moving out into the short grass where they can't be ambushed. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now, though, if that lion jumps out of the weeds at them, well, now that's called a circus strike, right? Circus just means near, right? So it's a near strike. When the near strike happens, that means the brain activity leaves the prefrontal cortex, goes down to the hypothalamus, and we have what we call in humans panic. So right. that's just what happens when you're like driving down the road and you come across a deer and the deer jumps some crazy direction, right? That, yep. that, that means the brain activity went to his hypothalamus and in a deer that if the deer jump was predictable, then they would be easy to, to catch. So they jump in some crazy direction so they won't, right? So that same exact thing happens in humans. So, so we'll, we'll come back on that, okay? But, but what, what you should note is that this experience is not very different than the experience of soldiers who get ambushed. In fact, from the, as far as the brain is concerned, it's the same experience, right? So soldiers are driving down the road on a, on a convoy and there's a circus strike, right? Close ambush. What happens? The same thing. The brain activity goes, yeah. goes to their hypothalamus. They, they do what we say is, is panic. There's more to that, but they basically do what we, they, we, we call panic in humans. And so they have the same experience as the gazelles. Okay. So okay. what's of note there is, Imagine now we're talking about the lion, right? So the lion, he's got something entirely different going on. He's hungry. He's going to go to the fridge, right? So he's going to go down there, hides in the grass, maybe sneaks up on him. Here come the gazelles. He jumps out on him. His brain activity remains in the prefrontal cortex the entire fight because he's just hungry, right? So what he's doing the whole time is like evaluating what's going on in the fight. If it's going his way, cool, stay with it. If it's not going on his way, then he'll disengage. Okay. So what's important, what's yeah. important is that the, what's happening in the brain, the brain activity between the predator and the prey is different. And so now imagine the soldiers like a, in the Ranger Regiment or some counter terror unit or something, and they're going out on raids every single night, maybe four or five of them for months at a time. They're not experiencing what the gazelles are experiencing. They're experiencing what the lion is experiencing. It's a totally, totally different thing right so what we do is we try to like like lay uh all of the trauma that happens in combat into the one bucket of ptsd but that's not actually accurate because we have a whole bunch of different types of experiences that we can examine right so, yeah totally. so just to kind of to finish that which i didn't mention earlier was the 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 uh, posture or submit well so posture and then submitting is real but it doesn't happen in predator or prey behavior what happens in male, in male hierarchical fighting. So most, most of the listeners have probably heard like Jordan Peterson talks about the way lobsters do. So if you take two lobsters or two crickets or something like that, right? Lobsters who've never seen another lobster in their entire life and you put two males in a pen, they will go through a ritual, right? So the, they're trying to establish a dominance hierarchy. The first thing, sure. first thing that's gonna happen is they're gonna bow up and put their claws in the air, right? One of them is way bigger than the small one will scurry away. If they're about the same size, then they wrestle. So they grab each other by the claws, try to flip each other over. If one of them can flip the other one, then he scurries away. They've established a hierarchy, right? But if they're, they can't flip each other, then they back off and then you come back to fight. Now they're trying to snip each other's eyes off and shit like that. Hmm. So the reason why they have the posture and submit portion is because 
if they just go to fighting, then lobster number three, who's not going to be injured at all, probably win, right? Because he's not even involved right. in the fight, right? So, well, and yeah, it's a different, it's a di- it's a total different context. I think is what kind of got missed there, right? That's what I hear you saying. Like, yeah, posture and submit comes in kind of tribal cultures or some level of culture because I mean you well, can't comes, you just can't kill all the other men, yeah. right? You can't kill all the other males off. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, but you were is it's conspecific behavior. I mean, it's between members of the same exactly. So, yeah, so that, so that's yeah. that's so that you might think that that extrapolates to war because that's conspecific as well, right? But it doesn't, and the reason it doesn't is because war evolves from what's called male coalition uh, reproductive strategies. So imagine wolves, chimpanzees, lions, etc. Right? What they do some species do is form coalitions of males in order to dominate resources, including females. So for example, wolf pack, right? Within the pack, it's a group of males, right? The alpha male isn't the toughest male. The alpha male is the best coalition builder, right? So he could build a coalition around him and of, of, and that is going to be a winning proposition, right? Because it might have five or six or seven wolves instead of just himself being tough. Okay. And so, you know, two, Almost tough wolves are tougher than one really tough wolf. So, so you have to have a coalition. So now they within that coalition, though, they establish a dominance hierarchy. And that hierarchy is established exactly like the lobsters, right? It's, it's a posture and submit, yeah. right? So, so that happens within a coalition. Uh, it's the same for chimpanzees. It's the same for human hunter-gatherers, right? So, so what's going on? <clears throat> among the members of the comp- of the coalition, it's the same thing that's going on among the lobsters. So, for example, when two tough guys are fighting in a bar or the UFC, that's what they're doing. It's male hierarchical fighting. Okay, right. So, so to kind of put that into context, you know why why are they fighting? Right. Well, the reason the lobsters fight is because female lobsters molt. So when they're molting, when they're having their babies, they're they're in danger, right? So they need a cave, a cave to hide in. And so the men fight over the caves because the women want the guy with the biggest cave. So that it's not too much different than humans, right? Like, I mean, the guy with the, with the really nice car and a big house, that guy's still pulling the ladies, right? It's not that different between lobsters whom we separated from 350 million years ago and humans. Okay. But once again, we have an, an evolution past that, which is this male coalition reproductive strategy. Okay. So now what happens, we talked about what happens within a coalition, the same thing with the lobsters, but between coalitions, now they use predator and prey behavior to fight wars with each other. So mm-hmm. my undergrad was in natural sciences, right? I was trying to work in, in a predator reintroduction in Africa because I, I lived in Africa for a while and it was really kick-ass. So, so. I wanted to to go back there, right? So one of the things I studied a lot was the wolf reintroduction into Yellowstone. So the cool thing about that is they have collared three-fifths of the wolves in Yellowstone uh, since they reintroduced them, which is like 15 years ago now. That means that we know where all the wolves were, who they fought, who was within what pack, et cetera, what happens between packs, you know, the whole, the whole tamale, yeah. we can lay it all out. What's happened in all these wolf cultures for the last you know, 15 years, which is a lot. So one of the interesting things is there's a science called um, uh, 
forensic anthropology that can show yeah. that the the rates of death from different things among um, humans of the past, right? So the, the rates of death in human hunter gatherers from conspecific violence means violence between humans is almost the same as it is for chimpanzees and wolves, right? And wolves live in a constant state of warfare. They fight it out between yes. the packs all the time. So do chimpanzees and so do hunter gatherer humans. Okay. Yes. This is an important thing. So, so now, so, so imagine this for a second, right? Wolf packs are optimized for, uh, for war and not for hunting. So, so imagine the optimum number of wolves is for hunting is four or thereabouts, depending upon the type of, of game they're hunting. Right. But for elks, it's four. So, okay. so that means that they take a fifth wolf. They won't, each one of them will not get as much to eat as if they had four. That's what it meaning optimized for. Right. But if a pack of four runs into a pack of five, the five will probably win the fight. So they keep the fifth and the sixth and the seventh for the same reason, right? Because seven wolves is better than six. So the problem is that they're growing as they grow, they're getting less and less to eat for the individual wolf. Right. So, so right. wolf pack sizes are optimized for war, but limited by nutrition. Okay. So they actually max out based upon the terrain, you know, 25, 30, 35, something like that. And if they get too big, then they'll split up because now they're competing with, you know, over because they won't get more to eat. Right. Sure. So that's the way wolf packs work. And that's the way chimpanzee packs work. And that's the way human hunter gatherers work, too. Now, the reason that's important is because we invented farming 10,000 years ago. Right. Oh, yeah. So when we invented farming, what that meant was that we were no longer limited by nutrition. So instead of having a 150-man coalition, we could have 15,000, you know, 15 million, totally. 300 million people in the United States right now, right? Okay, yep. so so that is important. Remember, we're talking about moral injuries here, right? So that is important because of how we get our morality. So let me come at this from a different angle for a second. There was a famous um, psychologist named Piaget who figured out that humans, he's, he's like the father of developmental psychology, right? He figured mm -hmm. out that humans learn our morality through play. So imagine this, human children play two types of games. The first type is co competitive and cooperative. So back to hockey, right? When, when much people are playing hockey. Are right. they competing or are they cooperating? Well, they're really doing both, right? They're, totally. they're cooperating on the rules and competing within the rules. And that's sort of a microcosm of, of what goes on in a society. We are all operating within our society's rules. And another name for those rules are moral laws or, or actual laws, right? Mm -hmm. So, and actual laws grew out of moral laws. They're not the same thing, but they grew out of them, right? The moral laws came first. So, so, um, so that's, and, and, in, and then competing within those laws, right? So that's one important thing. Mm -hmm. The other one is um, that humans um, can think in abstract. So they play role-playing games children do. So what role-playing games show is that we have the ability to admire people. So for example, whenever the children are playing war or they're playing house or something like that, 
each child in the game assumes a role. Well, they're not mimicking somebody in that role. You know, when I was a little kid, I wasn't mimicking somebody that I knew was a soldier. I was acting out the abstraction of what it means to be a soldier. Yeah. Right. So, so we can think in abstraction, which means we can admire people. Right. And if we can admire people, what do we admire? Think about that for a second, because what we admire are the traits that make people more successful in the competition. Right. We admire honest people because honesty is a good policy if you would like to get ahead. Right. Mm -hmm. Honest people are more successful than dishonest people. We admire hard work. We admire bravery. All those are traits that help you advance in the hierarchy and and make you more competitive. Right. For mate. That's right. Okay, so now imagine you took a society, hunter gatherers, 150 people in a society, and you could pick their brains and see what the qualities they admire were, and you could come up with their version of the perfect man, the best possible man. Okay? Well, in a hunter gatherer society that's constantly a war, that iconography it's called, it's sort of the Jungian iconography idea, that that iconography would be somebody who's good at war. You know, hunter gatherers don't have, they don't have any use for Gandhi. He's dead wood, you know, cause they're fighting and fighting right. wars all the time. Okay. Yeah, so, totally. so, so now put that back into what we were talking about, how populations grow. Right. So what happens whenever the population grows and we have a larger and larger coalition, you know, instead of 150, we have a, 1500 or 15,000 or something is as it gets larger, we're allowed to specialize more. Right. And so the number Mm -hmm. of people, the percentage of the population that's involved in the fighting gets increasingly smaller. So what, what percentage of the people in America, our 300 million person coalition are involved in the fighting between us and other coalitions. That's small. Very, very small percentage. Yeah. 100%. 100%. So now go back to that. Who are, uh, if you had to ask people across our whole 300 million, what their perfect person would look like. If you, if you could pull that out of their brains, they'll say mm-hmm. that perfect person becomes more and more peaceful as the society grows. Yes. 100%. Okay. And, and no, so, so, so imagine that now, whenever you have a, we grow up in that, in that society, right? So, we grew up with those ideas that are imposed upon are, are imposed upon us by our society. You know, you your your kids are in it right now. You got you raise your kid until they're four or five, then you send them away to preschool, and now they have a preschool teacher who's never been into conflict. And then they're going to have elementary school teachers and high school coaches and uh, guidance counselors and a preacher and all these people, none of whom know the first thing about war, right? All, all right. of whom's morality is formed because they live in the cocoon, might be a very large cocoon, but they live in the cocoon provided by the people who are doing the fighting. Right. And P.S., by the way, if you're prone or you're brain wired or you're genetically wired in that in that segment of the hunter tribe basis, you know, we can go way deep into that. You're then like kind of pushed away a little bit almost you know pushed out of this larger tribe and so yeah no that's true so the so the so the the larger peaceful society kind of thinks that the people who are still involved in war 
are like, you know, different from everybody, right? Yeah. And, and in some cases, we just call it what it is, right? The the larger society can look at it as, you know, bad or unhealthy yeah. or, you know, whatever, however they want to label it at 100%. And so, I mean, even just the fact before you even go to combat, the fact that you are, you know, I grew up that way. I mean, I grew up playing war, playing fireman. I've gotten to live out every childhood dream I've ever had. And thank you. Right. I'm, I am, I like who I am. And at the same time, I've had people you know, let right out question me, like, like, don't you think that's wrong? Don't you think that's bad? Yeah, no, and, and, <laughs> no. and you know, so so imagine too that what that means is that, you know, so let's so let's back up a step. So the concept of moral injuries, right? So moral yeah. injury is when, you know, you have experiences that destroy your deeply held beliefs. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's just state right out front that, <coughs> pardon me. That war is no more vicious today than it is among wolves and chimpanzees. When, when wolves totally. and chimpanzees fight, they kill each other and eat each other, right? So it's mm-hmm. it's just as it's just as vicious. There, that you know, primordial war is just as vicious as modern war. Okay, and you know that we've established that these these smaller societies, everybody's involved in war. Okay, so so whenever we develop these moralities. Then we raise our child in it, and then we send him off to war, and he finds that, and, and your kid finds that this war is really what it always was, and it destroys these beliefs that were imposed by a peaceful society. That's the cause of moral injuries. It's not. It's not uh, war. War isn't the cause, right? The cause. The cause right. is unrealistic morals, and mm-hmm. we we impose those morals on our on our religious icons. Imagine. So imagine that. You know, when when everybody in Europe was living in a feudal society and they were constantly fighting wars, right? So they opposed their, their views like that on Jesus, right? Who was their religious icon. Right. Okay, so that Jesus is not the same Jesus that the preacher down the street from you who's, you know, is is teaching your children today. That's the preacher. That's the Jesus that launched the Crusades. You know, when I, when I always tell a story when I'm talking to Christian people about, I say, imagine whenever the Romans came to get Christ and one of the disciples pulled out his sword and lopped off one of their ears, right? Nobody said, Hey, where'd you get that? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Because the disciples were armed. And so if you, if you introduce that idea to people who are living in the peaceful society of America, that, that Jesus's disciples were carrying swords and ready to fight. Yeah. You know, that just doesn't compute with them because the modern Jesus, the one that we interpret through our culture today is peaceful. It's almost like Gandhi, right? He's like, a, you know, but really, you know, the Jesus in the Bible is the one who jumped over the tables and whipped people. <laughs> you know, it's the same. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, I think there's, I think it's, I, I mean, it's, it is a, uh, I think, you know, we may have to, we may have to come back and do a whole deep dive into just the, the moral injury aspect. Cause that's a conversation I could have for about three yeah. days. Uh, that, that is, is so, you know, so important in so many ways. And uh, yeah, and I think it, you know, it does start in a, I think what it demands of us though, I, I think, I think my, my point I'm trying to get at is, and like I said, this, every one of those little things we talked about, every one of them has got a lot of information involved in it. And we can talk people, Oh, yeah. through the science but but the 
the real point though is that our our morals need to be examined and they need mm -hmm. to be morals that at the same time allow us to operate within a peaceful society and go to war without coming back damaged because what we saw hurt us because it isn't what you right. see that hurts you it's that you're it's no. that you were poorly prepared morally because the world is still and you know this is even true within the military imagine imagine this what percentage of people who have commanded divisions or who write books about war and all that, what percentage of those people have seen extended combat at the platoon level? Because that yeah. number is really small, uh, right? I, if, if, yeah, very, I mean, extremely yeah, small. Yeah, so that means that the morals that they're putting in their stuff is the morals produced by, uh, so, so give me, give an example, right? When we're, we're talking about like uh, wars of antiquity, right? I mean, mm -hmm. imagine Pickett's Charge, right? When the guys start walking across the field, you know, that shoulder to shoulder walking into the face of death, that is, first off, it's happening because all the people there do not want to be publicly humiliated by becoming cowards, right? So first off, that's mm -hmm. the, that primal fear of humiliation, loss of status is more powerful up to a certain point than fear of death. So that's an important thing to know. Yes. Second, it's being applied to us in a way that is not within our natural way of fighting because human hunter gatherers fight the same way wolves and chimpanzees do do raids and ambushes and stuff like that. Right. When the, when the Sioux Indians were fighting, you know, the Arapaho or whoever, they were fighting like wolves. They did raids. They yep. rode into the territory of the, of the other ones. They, they try to steal their women. You da, 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 down the list. Right. So yep. totally. that's the kind of warfare that our biology has prepared us for. Okay. So, mm -hmm. so there's two, two things to think about going forward. One is, one is, are we fighting within the ways that our biology has prepared us? And two, are our morals adopted to the real world? Because, because they right. must be right. Or you're going to suffer. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a huge point because the, in my opinion, a lot, they're not, they're, they're, they are very ethereal and wishful in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah. I mean, I grew up just like everybody else, right? My dad's an electrician. I grew up in the burbs. You know what I mean? My grand, my grandfathers sure. were both involved in world war two, but, but mostly our morality in a peaceful society is not the morality of warriors or of a warrior culture. Mostly it's the, it's the morality of a, of a baker or a candlestick maker. Yeah. I mean, and I think that goes and maybe we can, you know, we'll, we'll, we're, we're running out of time. So we may have to just do another, another deep dive into this thing. Maybe we'll do like a Friday conversation yeah, or something with it. But yeah, man, because it, you know, there is, because this is, this goes across the board in so many ways. I mean, shit, my brain's exploding right this minute. Uh, but here's what I uh, also, I'm going to tie it back to kind of just our original like start point. And, and this makes sense to me now for your your dive in. And we talked about the sheer nature of combatives and combatives training. And, you know, you go back to your your story you shared on Monday, range of battalion, call two squad leaders out, put them out. They're going to fight. You know, is, is somebody going to be humiliated or not? Right. Are they are they prepared for that moment or not? And, you know, and so. Man, that's where like that's this is the value, right? This is the deep dive 
real conversation that you never get to on why do I go do certain things? Why do I put myself in certain evolutions, training evolutions, prepare myself certain ways, uh, not just from the standpoint of can I deal with this particular moment right this second, but am I carrying myself the way I need to carry myself to fulfill on the role and responsibility I have as a police officer, as a fireman, as a soldier, right? As all these things, regardless of what is kind of out there. So, yeah, I would, I would, you know, just to kind of pull it back in, like you said, you know, we have done a pretty good job as a community of understanding that you can train yourself, train skill sets and reactions into your autonomic brain. You know, when you see people, when you see people like on Bluetooth, you know, cops getting in gunfights and whatnot, every now and then you see one who has, who has trained his draw stroke and whatnot so that his immediate reaction is to go to guns and do it with skill, right? That happens occasionally. Mm -hmm. And that's because that person has done enough repetitions. Um, You know, we know the psychomotor learning process. He's done enough repetitions to get it past the, past the associative phase into the, um, into the autonomic phase, right? So we know that pretty well. Mm-hmm. But you see a lot of those guys then, even though they have trained themselves well like that, they haven't trained themselves well morally so mm-hmm. that so that then after they do exactly what they spent years training to do, it hurts them. Like they have a like a yeah. like a then they're dealing with Yeah. And you know, in real yeah in real mm-hmm. war, in real war Moral injuries happen like this. You've heard your whole life that it's bad to kill children or women. And then the bad guys hide behind children and women. If you're either going to die or shoot through them, that's the reality, right? So if you have not, if your morals can't handle that, well, then you've been poorly trained, morally trained. Yeah. Yeah. You've been set up for, you've been set up. Yeah. You've been set up for failure because, because the, because the naivety of the people who thought they were doing the right thing and they were, you know, yeah. and, and, and we have to be able to handle that. Right. And we have to be able to yes. come right back and be a loving father and be a brother and be able to, yep. you know, go down the mall and be, cause that's within our group. Right. Yeah. 100%. The wolves are loving. Lions 100%. are loving amongst their packs. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then we can, you know, it might be a good conversation for us too. We can, we can dive into the tribal issue and, you know, how that hits us is it's a human, you know, to be kicked from the herd, to be removed from the herd is like one of the worst things in the world, uh, you know, at a deep, deep cellular level within human nature, within any animal, anything, right. Cape Buffalo, they're called the Daga boys, right. The old bulls who are too old to mate anymore. Now they're off on their own in a group of five. It's the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing, right? That's why we deal with guys after retirement, after leaving, after and there's so much that man, we're we're just gonna come back and like just do a whole combat psychology uh episode because I think that's I think that's of of high value. And it's not just I mean, it is combat derivative, but I liked even the way you had framed and talked about how combat occurs. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a I'm primarily a, a combatives instructor, and the reason I'm a combatives instructor though. I said, there's two things. There's a skill set and we need the skill set. If you don't have it, yes. you end up, you know, you know, we know, the old, the old thing about if you're walking around with a hammer, everything, every problem looks like a nail, right? Well, we walk around with guns. So every problem yep. isn't a target. 
Okay. So we have to have, the, yes. we have to have more than one tool and that's the skill set, right? And then the other side of it is we need to have the right mindset and combatives is in my estimation, one of the best possible tools to making sure that we, A, everybody in your organization identifies as a warrior, okay? And then that's the setup. We have to then, that's just the tip of the iceberg about what it takes to be ready for war. Yeah, man, I agree. I think I, I, I will not disagree with that statement. I think combatives goes far deeper than most people really understand uh, in in creating yourself to be able to, you know, handle and navigate and negotiate through situations violent or not. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like that's, I think there's so much to it. So Matt, thanks for the time, man. I appreciate you coming on. We'll schedule another one because I think it's going to be worth getting into some other areas. Um, and I think we could have a good conversation, but I really appreciate you taking the time and, uh, and coming on the show and sharing, you know, you're, you're the real deal, right? Real lessons learned. It's not, you're not just talking about the psychological aspects from, you know, having just gone to school and studied, you know, great shit. You're talking about it from real life, real life experience. And I really appreciate it. Well, thanks that. for having me, brother. I've enjoyed so much. Yeah, man. All right. Well, then that's going to wrap up this Wednesday episode. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Matt Larson, all of his information and where to get his books and follow stuff. And I recommend you pick them up. Uh, we'll all be on opmindset.com backslash mindset radio. Uh, all the links to his social media stuff will be there as well. Uh, so thanks so much for listening and we'll see you again on Monday.